So it's interesting, I, when I was choosing this particular series and when I was thinking about who I'd start with, you know, I, I just, right, right away, John the Baptist came to my mind because he is such a powerful, powerful man. Would you agree with that? When you read about him in the New Testament, he is so powerful. I mean, he's, he's a man's man. I mean, he's got the guts to wear, you know, these clothes that nobody else is wearing and eat food that no one else is eating. And, uh, but yet there's an imperfection excuse me, in his life that is so glaring. And so it encourages me that if God could use John the Baptist in the way that he used him, he could use me and he could use you. It is a very powerful thing. So John the Baptist was a man who experienced both sides of faith. He really did. He experienced both sides of faith. He had joy and sadness, hope and disappointment. All of that was wrapped up in his life. Jesus said about him, among those born of women, that would be all men, there is none, no one greater than John the Baptist. In other words, Jesus' view of John the Baptist was humongous. He <clears throat> was on the number one hit list of Jesus in a good way. And uh, he was related to Jesus. He was one of his cousins. And his message simply was this. He prepared the way and announced the arrival of Jesus when he came into, into Jerusalem in that region of the area. And uh, we begin our study together in John chapter 1, Verse number 29, and this is what it says. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <clears throat> so this is a bold announcement, and he does it in a prophetic way. And so with that in mind, I want to dig deeper into the life of John the Baptist because his life really encourages mine. So he was a man with a clear message. So stop there for just a second. I'm going to show you that in just a minute. But if I were to do your funeral next week, honestly, if I were to do your funeral and I was, you know, and I was asking your family, your friends, your neighbors about, you know, what, am I, what should I say about you? Would they say about you that you had a clear message concerning Jesus? Would they say that about you? That's the message that, that John portrayed. And uh, it was really a powerful thing. And this was his message, Matthew chapter 3. And it should be also our message as well. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That was his message. John started out, just like Jesus' earthly ministry, John started out with this message of, listen, turn away. Turn away from all that stuff that is empty anyway and turn to Jesus and live for him. Because he brings and offers you the kingdom. That's what's near. That's what, that was John's message. And he had a crystal clear message. And he made a lot of people mad. And he also brought a lot of people towards the kingdom because of it. He was a man with, of deep humility. Think about the fact that God chose him to announce the Messiah. That's a pretty big assignment, don't you think? That is a huge assignment. And yet, and through, through all that, there is a humility upon him that is so amazing. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 3, verse number 11. Just listen to these words. The address is on the screen, but just listen to these words. But someone is coming soon, this is John speaking, who is greater than I, greater than I, so much greater that I am not worthy even to, to, uh, to be his slave and carry away his sandals for him. That's what John said about himself. I'm not worthy to stoop down before him and even take his sandals off and carry them. That is a major amount of humility. Put that in the context 
of an interview after most football games. You know, to think about that. Think about, you know, the culture that you and I live, the self-promotion in our culture. Think about TikTok. And then, and then think about John the Baptist. This was, this, was, this was an ingredient in his life, a characteristic in his life that was amazing. And God always resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And he was not only a man of humility, he was a man of courage. This was his message to the religious hypocritical leaders of his day. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 says, this is what John did. John, did. John looked at religious leaders of his day and he says, you know what you are? You guys are a brood of snakes. <laughs> That's not how you win friends. I'm just simply saying that is not how you endear people to yourself. But John had the courage to say, you know what? You are, you are snakes. You are, you are evil. That was so bold for him to, to say. And then... He also was a man of obedience. Even though he didn't want to baptize Jesus, uh, was, was felt unworthy to baptize Jesus, he submitted to the word of Jesus. When Jesus said, John, do it, John did it. And that's the kind of obedience that we should have in our life as well. So his personal crisis of faith, that's what I really want to talk to you about today. Because all the things that I just spoke of are amazing. We go, wow, I'd like to be like that. I think we would say that for the most part. But the reality is, is that John had a personal lapse in his own faith life with Jesus. So I want to talk about that, and I'll talk about what we can learn from that, and then make some application. And I think you'll find this fairly encouraging. So in Luke 17, uh, John speaks out against Herod, the king, for marrying his brother's wife. You know, so John just says, hey, dude, that was wrong. You shouldn't have done it. He speaks publicly and said, this is a national sin for you as the king to do this. And the wife didn't take a liking to that very much at all. In fact, so much so, to appease her, he had John thrown into prison. So he was just making his wife happy, and, and, uh, but he really didn't want to. I mean, you, as you read through the Bible, you'll discover that Herod didn't really want to take action against John, but his wife did, so he did. And and it ended up costing John's life in, in the end. And uh, if you don't understand all that drama, and it's filled with drama, just watch an episode of American Housewives and you'll kind of get <laughs> the idea behind what was going on in Herod's life, okay? So John is in prison, and uh, he's discouraged. John is in prison, he's very discouraged, and he sends his disciples, his disciples, the people that had been following John and he'd been teaching, uh, were with him apparently, and so he sends them to Jesus with this question. Are you the Messiah or do we look for another? Are you the Savior? Are you the Christ or we, do we look for another? Now think about this. This was John the Baptist who, who stands by the riverbank and says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And now he's in prison and, he's, and he is doubting He's having this faith lapse in his life. He's doubting whether or not he was right. So he sends these disciples and he asks them this question. And so Jesus answers his question back. He sends his disciples back to John and he says, Tell John that what you have seen and heard, the blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is preached to the poor. You decide, John if that's the qualification of the Messiah. 
And I'm sure that that was very, very powerful in John's life. And he recognized that Jesus was. And he probably, he, we don't know, but he, it, it seems to me right to say that John died in his faith. So let's talk about John the Baptist in his weakness for just a few minutes. Because I am certain that everyone here has been or will be tempted in their faith level. Because hard things happen. And difficult things happen. People die. Loved ones die. People get thrown in jail for no reason. I mean, we live in a culture, when you think about the pandemic, when you think about, when you think about political crisis in our nation, political uproar, when you think about the division that's in our nation, when you think about all the things that are happening around the world today, when you think about all those things, you can, just all, you can be certain that there's some bad stuff that's going to be heading our way. Do you understand that? It's not going to be, you know, lollipops and roses until Jesus comes back. It's going to be a very turbulent walk in life until the day that Jesus comes back. So with that in mind, let's see if there's some things that we can learn from John the Baptist that would help us face those things. So first of all, John's disappointment came at two levels. First of all, and this is so in, in helpful and informative, and uh, I believe it to be absolutely true, John had some misconceptions in his life that led to his lapse of faith in the moment of crisis. So John, first of all, had the wrong expectations of God. He had a view of God that was his view, his worldview, but it wasn't necessarily God's view. John expected a baptism of fire to come. What does that mean? God ex fully expected Jesus to bring about wrath and, and, and judgment upon the earth. Remember last week I told you that what the Jews expected was a political deliverer, that someone would come on the scene and that would deliver them from the, from the tyranny of the, of the Romans. And, and uh, that was John too. And so when that didn't happen, that had to be discouraging. Jesus then, not only that, he was hanging out with the people John expected God to judge. He was hanging out, Jesus was hanging out with prostitutes and criminals and tax collectors and John's thinking, oh, good night, Jesus. What are you thinking? And so he sends a word and says, are you the Messiah or do we look for another? So the first thing that we learn about John and maybe about ourselves is sometimes we have the wrong expectation of God. God doesn't always do things, <laughs> this, is, this is revelation to you, I'm sure, God doesn't do things your way. If I was God, I mean, have you ever said that? If I was God, you know, you're lucky I'm not God because I'm pretty, I'm pretty impetuous in my behaviors. I'm, you know, I'm just, and playful. And so I might just zap you just to play with you. Just, you know, I don't know. But uh, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't intentionally. But, you know, if I had that kind of power, maybe. I don't know. But the fact is, is that have you ever said, if I were God, I would do it this way? God, why is it that you allow this? Why is there so much evil? Why is there so much suffering? Why, God, don't you act? Why don't you show yourself? I mean, all those things are real. And the reality is, is that God is on a timetable that he hasn't consulted me in. He hasn't. He didn't come down and say, hey, let's have a board meeting today and uh, let's talk about how the, how, the end th how you think the end should play out and how your life should play out. He never consulted me. He just said, be obedient and be faithful. That's all he said to me. Right? Hello out there? Come on now. 
So sometimes our expectations of God are wrong. And when our expectations of God are wrong, when things happen that we don't expect, it causes us to have a lapse of faith in saying, okay, if that's not true, then what else is not true? And that's how the evil one, that's a thought that, that uh, is planted in, in people's heads by the evil one. And then not only, not only is his personal expectations of God wrong, but John's personal expectations were probably misappropriated. John was in prison by the king that Messiah was supposed to destroy. Remember? He thought Messiah would come and relieve them of the Roman tyranny. But that did not happen. And now John is in prison because of the, of the, of the whim of this king who was supposed to be taken out. So John now is going, okay, what is going on? Everything that I thought I put my faith in is now tumbled around. I don't know what to do. That's where John was in that moment of faith crisis in his life. So what can I learn about from John's story in my own story? How can I mix his story and my story together so that I can learn from what John happened to John and what John did so that I can now learn to live out my context of faith in 21st century America where almost certainly, almost certainly we know that bad things are going to happen. How can I do that? So let me give you three things. And I think these three things are applicable right now. You can put them into your life right now. You can start adjusting your life right now to these things. First of all, set aside preconceived ideas of how God is supposed to work. You don't know. You think you do, but you don't. I don't either. I've got to set aside my preconceived ideas of how I think God should work. Because God, I've said this earlier, I'm going to say it again. God did not consult me. He's on a different timetable than I'm on. And certainly everything in the Bible is going to come to pass. But the reality is, is that I don't know how it's going to come to pass. I don't know what the mechanism, I don't know any of those things. And so I've got to set aside my preconceived ideas about God and just allow God to sit on his throne and be God and respond to anything that happens with a sense of faith. That's what I've got to learn to do. And God does not usually answer our why questions. Have you noticed that about your life? I've asked God a lot of why questions and I've gotten nearly zero answered. So I want to show you that, that that's not unusual. That's a pattern in the Bible. So let me show you just a few, a few characters in the Bible that had the same dilemma that I've had. First of all, Moses. Remember him? He's the deliverer. We're going to talk about him next weekend, by the way, so come back, stay tuned. Moses is the deliverer of Israel. He takes millions of people from, from Egypt, Egypt, where they're enslaved to the Egyptians, and delivers them from slavery. And Moses then, in a lapse of faith, says, Lord, why have you brought trouble to this people? He asks that question to God. I mean, God parts <laughs> the sea. God gives him signs and wonders and, and at his hand. And then Moses says, uh, God, I have a question for you. Uh, why did you bring trouble upon this people? So Moses had a question that went unanswered. God never answered that question. And then there's Gideon, this mighty judge. He says, why has all this happened to us? Same, kind of the same question. Why, why, God, are you allowing this to happen to us? Aren't you, we your chosen people? And then there was Naomi, great woman of faith. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home empty again. Why, God? Why? That's what Naomi said. Didn't, God didn't answer that question. Nehemiah. 
Why is the house of God forsaken? God never answered that question. And then there's Job. I love the book of Job. I've read it many, many times. If you haven't, it's worth the read. I'm telling you, there's a lot of stuff in there you got to kind of read through. But Job had a lot of questions. And one of those questions is, why have you set me as your target, God? Why have you set me as your target? And by the way, God had. If you know the story of Job, you know what happened? Satan comes with his demons before the presence of God. And God says to Satan, (laughs) oh, why? God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Oh, by the way, let me pay it. Let me. Hey, you should pay attention to Job. I'm thinking, God, don't tell Satan to pay attention to me. That's what I'm thinking. And, you know, you know, Job has this question. Why have you set me as your target? And in fact, there in the book of Job alone, there are 300 unanswered questions. 300 unanswered questions that Job and his friends asked God and it never came to pass that God answered any of those questions. And then there's David, mighty King David. Who doesn't love David? David's a man after God's own heart. Yeah, he had a, he had a mess up, but, but, you know, we love David. David was the king. And uh, David said, Lord, why do you cast off my soul? That was what David said to God. Why do you hide your face from me? And then there's Jeremiah. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable? This is Jeremiah the weeping prophet. This is one of God's chosen guys. This was a prophet of God, a major character in the, New, in the Old Testament. And Jeremiah, in a minute of crisis, says, why is my, my pain perpetual? Why is it that I never seem to get over my pain? But the greatest why in all the Bible is when Jesus utters from the cross this question to God that went unanswered. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Went unanswered. Jesus, this is Jesus. This is the Son of God. This is, this is, the, this is the amazing Savior. This is, the, this is Yahweh himself. And Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So if Jesus has some why questions not answered, then you and I should expect the same. And so I have to set aside my preconceived ideas about how God should work if I'm going to have a chance at not having a crisis during a time of testing. I can't tell you why some of you are going through different circumstances in your life. I know some of you are. In fact, let's just take, a, let's take an honesty check right now. How many of you have right now, as I'm speaking, some personal pain that you're experiencing? Just raise your hand. Could be emotional, physical, spiritual. Okay, a lot of you. I came to the right place to preach this message. But here's what I want to tell you. I know, I know you don't want to hear this. I can't tell you why. I can't tell you why you're experiencing what you're experiencing. But I can give you some insight into what I do know. So I'm not going to tell you what I don't know. I'm going to talk to you about what I do know. So here's what I do know. Medically, when a bone is broken, and I am, I am not a doctor by any means. I'm not an expert in this field. I did stay at the Holiday and Express one night. But older people understand that joke. But, you know, medically, when a bone is broken and reset, I'm told that it's potential and probable that the bone actually becomes stronger at the place that it breaks. You know, it forms calcium and, it, you know, the body has this, um, this magical, miracle way 
of healing itself. And, and then with physical therapy, you strengthen the muscles around it. And so what I do know is that oftentimes when you and I have a brokenness in our life, the what that God is doing in our life is he's strengthening that which is weak inside of us. So I can tell you that for sure, that my experience as I look back on, on 45 years of Christian life, I can experience, I've experienced a measurable amount of heartache and I can look back and I can say in every circumstance, God strengthened something that was weak inside of me. I can say that with clarity and assurance to you. It is a very, po very possible thing that God is doing in your life right now that God might be in the midst of your pain taking something that is broken and mending it so that you can heal. And all of us have brokenness. All of us have brokenness. And what God wants to do with our brokenness is heal our brokenness so that we can testify of his grace and mercy and love for us. That's the first thing that I have to do. But to do all those things, I have to set aside my preconceived ideas of how God is supposed to work. That's the first thing. Had John done that, he might not have sent his disciples back to ask that question. Second thing that I think we can learn from John to do is we have to, and listen to these words carefully, we can learn to trust God. We can learn to trust God. That's a learned phenomenon. It doesn't happen magically or mystically. You learn it from experience. You learn it from being able to put confidence in God in circumstances that you don't know how it's going to come out, and yet you trust God anyway. Just as Jesus gave himself on the cross with his own question unanswered, you and I can learn to, to present our body as a living sacrifice to God, even though we don't understand what's happening around us. We can learn how to have a greater trust in God. We can do that. We can learn to trust God. Third thing, last thing. And this is probably the hardest thing to do that I'm going to say to you today. And it's probably the hardest thing to understand. If you are going to figure out how to survive a crisis of faith, you must look beyond what is right in front of you. Let me say that to you right again because it's so important. If you are going to learn to survive a crisis of faith, you've got to look beyond what is right in front of you. So several of you, several of you, just a few minutes ago said you're in personal pain. You raised your hand. You admitted it to me and the people around you that you have some personal pain going on in your life. Let me just speak to you for just a second. I want you to hear me without any, with, with crystal clarity. I want you to hear me. Whatever it is, whatever pain is in your life right now is temporal. It's going to pass. It's going to pass. Everything in this life is a season. Life is a season, and there's a time for everything. There's a time for laughing, and there's a time for crying. There's a time for weeping, and there's a time for laughing. Everything that we go through has a season in it. Sometimes it ends at death, but it's still a season. It's a season. So whatever you're going through is going to pass. Whatever you're going through is temporary. So I want to I kind of tell you a personal story that I think will help you put your mind around this concept so when my son Joel was about 10 years old, he was uh, mauled by this, this guard dog that somebody bought, moved in our neighborhood, bought a dog that had been, had been used as a guard dog at, you know, a junkyard. 
So this dog was mean. And so my, my son, this dog was like, you know, when it would put its paws up on my fence, it could look over, it could look over a six-foot fence. That's how big this dog was. So my son got mauled by this dog. I mean, I heard the screaming. I heard, you know, I, I ran out outside. You know, I, you know, I, you know I, he was bleeding everywhere. Got him safe away from the dog. You know, picked him up. And uh, his mom was, you know, backed the van up. That, yeah, I used to drive a van in those days. Okay, don't judge me. I drive a Ferrari today. No, I don't. I don't drive a Ferrari. I don't. I drive a Toyota today, okay? So I haven't gotten much of an increase here. But, uh, you know, we had a van in those days. She was sitting in the front seat. I loaded him on her lap. You know, he's 10 years old. He, you know, she's putting, you know, pressure on the wound. And, and he is bleeding everywhere, everywhere. He's just bloody. And so we, I get in the van and I drive as fast as the van can go. <laughs> I don't know how fast a van can go. But, uh, you know, we're, he, to this day, he still remembers the ride because I went over centerpieces, you know, I you know, drove around traffic, you know, I drove, you know, 90 miles an hour down the freeway. I finally get to the hospital and uh, I pick him up and I run him into the hospital. He's in my arms and I'm bloody and he's, ble he's bleeding all over the floor. You know, if he would have had, you know, and, you know, they didn't stitch. And I don't know what they do today, but they, you know, this is what the doc said then. They couldn't stitch it because it would cause infection. As it was, he was in the hospital for a week and he did get an infection. And, but he, the doctor said he would have probably had over 100 stitches had they stitched it. He was, I mean, this dog did a number on my son. So I run through the hospital and when I, when I get inside, we did, they didn't know we were coming. They looked at us. They looked at the blood. And they ran and they, they ran over and grabbed him out of my arms and took him immediately to the back. And, uh, and as he, they did that, I went back with him and, you know, spent the next week with him in, in his recovery process. And uh, as I walked back to the back, I looked back and there were probably 30 to 50 people in the waiting room waiting to get in to see a doc. And, I'm, you know, the thought occurred to me you know, some of them probably were maybe in the beginning stages of being diagnosed with cancer or some major illness. They were frightened to death. They're sitting in this emergency room. I walk in and I hand my kid off to the nurse and she takes him to the back. I wonder how that made them feel. Think about that. Now think about how, we, how it works out in our relationship to God. Sometimes when we see God taking care of other people instead of us, it sometimes causes us to have a lapse in faith. God, why don't you answer my prayer like you answered Billy's? God, why do you bless so-and-so and don't bless me? Why does it seem like my life, but the, the, the Billy's life, every time he turns around, you're just blessing him. And, and what about my life, God? How come, how come it feels like I'm getting cursed and not blessed? Ever felt that way? Some people do. A lot of people do, actually, at some point in their life. Why, God? Why, God? Just like those people in the waiting room probably think, I've been here for five hours. How come he gets to go in and I don't? That's, our na that's, that's natural. And the way that we overcome that is simply this. Listen to this very carefully. This is so good and so powerful for you and I to understand. We have to stop seeing what's in front of us and start seeing what's just over the next bit. We've got to 
ignore what's in front of us. I'm not suggesting that we aren't living in the present. We are living in the present. But we ignore the present for the sake of the future. That's what the Bible teaches us to do. I'm going to show you that in just a minute. But the reality is, is that I have to learn the discipline. I have to learn the discipline of looking beyond what is right in front of me. Because what is right in front of me oftentimes causes me great pain and great suffering and great discouragement. What is right in front of me sometimes creates depression for me. What is right in front of me sometimes creates anxiety. What is right in front of me sometimes just twists me around. What's right in front of me? What I've got to learn to do, and this is a discipline, is I've got to recognize that this is temporal and I've got to look beyond what is right in front of me to see what's past that. And so I want to show you this from the Bible so you know I'm not making this up. And uh, there's this really wise author of the book of Hebrews and he writes in chapter 12 some amazing words. He says, let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Everybody that the moment of salvation was put in the race. You're in the race. You are in the race. Let us run with endurance the race that has been set before us. And then we do this by, watch this, keep our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him. He, endures the cro- he endured the cross disregarding dis- dis- its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside Scott, God's throne. How did Jesus endure six hours on the cross? Hebrews tells us how. He looked beyond the pain to the glory. He looked beyond the pain to the glory that would be revealed in him. It is so great. It's so powerful. He looked beyond his own personal suffering and saw you. He looked beyond his own personal suffering and saw himself being exalted, saw his resurrection, saw all that. So he didn't become focused on the pain of the present. He became focused on the glory of the future. Get this. Listen to this very carefully. Listen to me. This is, this is gold. Someday, maybe soon, maybe later, I don't know. But one day, you're going to breathe the air of heaven. Do you realize that? One day, in a blink, in, a, in, a, in a, just a sudden moment, in a moment, you're going to breathe the air of heaven, and what will be in front of you is Jesus Christ. Just like that just like that. And if I can learn, and if I can learn, if I can learn the discipline of seeing that, of longing for that, of wanting that, of desiring to breathe the air of heaven, then I can endure anything that this planet has to offer me. But I don't do it. I can't do it by being focused on what's in front of me because what's in front of me is normally hard and difficult and troubling. But what is in front of that is glory. That's what we serve for. That's what we long for. That's the life of the believer. That's why we don't have to fret. That's why we don't have to get twisted around. That's why we don't have to live in depression. That's why we don't have to do a lot of things. Because one day I'm going to breathe the air of heaven. And that is worth the price of admission. Isn't it? 
It is. It is. So, Father, I just pray that you would allow us to see that with spiritual eyes, that you would allow us to understand that with a spiritual heart, and, God, that you would give us wisdom to know how to put it into our life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.